Good morning. People of God, it is such a privilege to stand before God's people and to bring His Word as we all come together to call Him our God, to call upon the name of the Lord, to sing His praises, and now to be instructed from His Word, to be people under the Word of God. That's who we are. I was talking with uh, someone recently about the sufficiency of Scripture for all of life, and and we're reminded of that uh, throughout the Bible, that Scripture makes us like a tree uh, with fruit that is ripe in season. Scripture makes us fully equipped, ready for every good work, for every good work. So there's nothing that God cannot bring about in our lives by means of His Word. And so what a privilege it is to be together as God's people uh, and to be instructed from his word corporately. As we gather together, it is one thing to be alone in our private prayer closet, meditating on the word alone with God, and that's a wonderful thing. It is great to gather with friends and relatives and for family worship. It is great to gather in small groups, but uh, what a privilege it is, a special privilege it is to gather as the people of God on the Lord's Day in corporate worship, at which we will celebrate communion and hear from the Lord. So I'm thankful to him for another Sunday. If you would please go with me in your Bibles to Exodus 4, verses 18 to 31. <clears throat> Exodus 4, 18 to 31. We have just finished the burning bush scene. <clears throat> As I've said many times, probably one of the most famous scenes or iconic scenes in the Bible. A God appearing to Moses in the burning bush, the bush that was burning but was not being consumed. And it's there that God delivers to Moses a message of his saving intentions with regard to Israel. And so we read this back in chapter 3, verses 7 to 8. <clears throat> then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt <clears throat> and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Just in that statement alone, we get so much insight into who the Lord is. He sees the affliction of his people. He, he never turns a blind eye to our affliction. He never ignores it. He's never absent. He always sees it, and he hears the cries of his people. He's been hearing the cries of his people individually, but what we, what we got at the end of chapter 2 is what seems to be a corporate cry among the Israelites enslaved in Egypt to the Lord, to their God, asking for his help. And here the Lord at the burning bush tells Moses that he has heard the cry of the people because of their taskmasters, that he knows their suffering and that he has come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. God's intentions are to rescue his people, to save them from their awful condition. So what will Yahweh, the God of Israel, do to save his people? How will this God save his people? And the answer is that he will send a man. He will send a man named Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. He will, he will send Moses with a message. Moses will be the deliverer, 
and he will bring a message of deliverance. He will send Moses to deliver his word and to perform his miracles. We need to remember that. It's not Moses who brought the Israelites out of Egypt. It is the Lord who brought the Israelites out of Egypt with a mighty hand, with an outstretched hand. God brought his people out of slavery, and he used Moses. Here's Moses with this rinky-dink little staff, a shepherd's staff of all things, and, and God uses that shepherd's staff as a symbol that it is not Moses who is doing these things, but it is the Lord, the God of Moses. God will send him to deliver a message, to deliver his word, and to perform his powerful wonders. Last week, as we moved into chapter 4, we looked at Moses' three straightforward objections. So God comes to Moses and he tells him to do this thing and Moses objects. Not once, not twice, but three times. And that, those three straightforward objections, of course, flow out of two softer objections, as we talked about, two questions that Moses asked the Lord when the Lord first calls him that kind of poke holes in the whole plan. In the whole idea. Last week we saw those three straightforward objections. Moses says, The people aren't going to listen to me, God. The people will not receive me. They will not believe my words. They will not listen. And then he tells the Lord, I can't speak well. I'm not an eloquent man. I, I, have, I am heavy of mouth and heavy of tongue. That imagery of just being unable to speak. The imagery of having a weight tied to, think of a, a, a large dumbbell tied to his mouth. He can't speak quickly, can't speak well. We talked about last week how it is probably the case that Moses does have some form of speech impediment. Maybe this is being inflated by him, exaggerated, maybe not. But Moses senses his own deficiency. I cannot speak well. And then finally, like a nice cherry on top, in the most transparent way, Moses finally says, oh my Lord, would you please just send somebody else? Uh, he says, they won't listen. I can't speak. And then finally we get Moses' heart. He just doesn't want to do it. He's not interested in this task. He's not interested in this calling. He does not want to go. Even though the Lord has shown him his glory, even though there's this miraculous appearance of a, of a bush burning but not being consumed, even in spite of the signs that he's seen, the holiness of God that he has both perceived and been instructed on, even then, Moses says, I don't want to do it. I am not interested. Would you please send somebody else? And what we saw last week is that to each of these objections, God graciously and patiently provides a reassuring answer. And we saw God's anger in the final one, God's, God's wrath, God's judgment, God's righteous indignation against sin. Of course, God is gracious with Moses as a believer in light of Christ's death. God is looking at Moses, even Moses and all of those Old Testament saints through Christ who, who would come later. And bear Moses' objections, Moses' obstinate heart. But God graciously and patiently responds to 
each of these objections. He tells Moses that he will give him signs to convince the people. And he shows him the signs. He says, I'm going to give you these things to do in front of the people. Here, watch. And he gives a demonstration of these signs. As the one who made Moses' mouth and ordained his deficiencies. So it's not just that God made Moses' mouth as a human being, but it is that God is sovereign over his deficiencies. Who makes a man deaf or mute or seeing or blind? It is the Lord. And we talked about John 9 and the man born blind. But God reminds him that he is the creator. He is the ordainer even of deficiencies, disabilities, weaknesses. Yahweh will be with him to help him. I will be with your mouth, Moses. I made your mouth. I ordained your deficiencies and I will be with you. You have to trust in me and not in your mouth. Not in your abilities. And finally, God will send Aaron, his brother, with him to function as a helper and a mouthpiece. Uh, God refers to Aaron uh, as a prophet, uh, like uh, Moses will be like God, and Aaron will be like a prophet. Aaron will function as Moses' mouthpiece. Moses will show up and be as God in the presence of Pharaoh, be as God in the presence of the people, and Aaron will be as his prophet, being his mouthpiece. And in fact, God has already directed Aaron to go and meet Moses. So God's already sovereign even over Moses' objections. Aaron is already en route. God has already made this clear to him before Moses even asked about it. Send someone else. God has already ordained to give Moses a partner to help him. So that's where we ended last week. Moses' objections answered. And as I said last time, the next words are very instructive for us. As we, as we read that up through verse 17, the very next words are instructive for us here this morning as Christians who are gathered in the name of Christ, who are worshipers of the one true God, who are called to love and know and obey this God. I think the following words, the very first words in verse 18, are so instructive for us. And here's what they say. And Moses went. Uh, that's what it says in English. That's what it says in Hebrew. And Moses went. The very next words after his objections and after God's response. In other words, the conversation is over. No more objections no more responses to objections. God has spoken. God's word and God's will must stand. There is only one response. Listen to this, people of God. There is only one response. And it is to obey. It is really that simple. One response, God's word has been delivered, and that response is to obey. You know, I've mentioned this before in sermons, but there is a, a habit among Christians, something that I think we do, and we've talked about this a lot as a men's ministry, as we've tried to, to, to 
figure out how do we come alongside of men, how do we encourage men and shepherd men. Particularly, this has come up in the area of pornography. When talking about how do we help men, how do we come alongside of men in the Lord and help them to entirely free themselves of this sin of pornography. And I think one of the things that we struggle with, one of the things that we tend to do, is constantly refer to our sins as struggles. We're constantly referring to areas of our lives where we are sinning against God. It's that simple. It is that simple. We are sinning against God. And what do we do with it? What do we call it? What label do we put on it? And it's this, I'm struggling with that. I'm struggling with that. We call it struggling, and God calls it disobeying. Use God's label. Let God's label stand. Don't justify sin by saying, I'm struggling with this. How long are you going to struggle, child of the living God? We call it struggling. God calls it disobeying. Therefore, stop struggling and start obeying. Respond to the word of God with, and he went, and she went. God speaks, and we obey. It's the only response to the living God. It's the only response to the God of the Bible, the God of Moses, the God of Israel. And if you're stuck in this mindset of, well, you know, this is what we do, we struggle, hear the words of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Does that sound like someone, let's take pornography as an example. Does that sound like someone who should just stumble along day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade in this sin? Someone for whom this can be written, his divine power has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. You have the spirit of God living in you. Stop struggling and start obeying. So today, we pick up in verse 18 with these words, Moses went. And we, we will go up today through the end of the chapter in verse 31. So today's sermon will take us up through the end of chapter 4. The title for the sermon this morning is Returning to Egypt. So if you would go ahead and stand with me. As we read God's word together, returning to Egypt. Exodus 4, verses 18 to 31. This is the word of the living God. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt. 
for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. This kind of comes out of nowhere when you read it. Verse 25, then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he led him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. What an amazing moment for God's people there as they hear what God has been doing and what God is going to do. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord and ask for his blessing over this time of instruction from his word. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. This morning, Lord, as we think of these Israelites bowing, hearing what you have done for them, what you you had in purpose to do, what you were carrying out already through Moses and what you were going to do in delivering them from Egypt. Father, we come together this morning as those who are hearing through songs and through preaching, through praying, Seeing through the Lord's Supper, we are those who are encountering the truths of the gospel this morning. We're being reminded that you have visited us. You have come to us, Father. You have observed our affliction. You have seen that we were under your wrath, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the power of the prince of the air, Children of wrath, sons of disobedience, utterly lost, darkness and death. And you have come to us through Christ. And that's what we're being reminded of this morning, Father. We praise you for the reminder of the gospel that you have come to us in Christ. And so we bow before you and we worship you, our God. We thank you. You are merciful and gracious to sinners like us, Lord, that though our Obedience to you is so incredibly imperfect. Christ obeyed on our behalf and in him, by his spirit, we too have the power to obey you. Father, we ask for grace in this. We ask that that as we 
Uh, as your word is opened up this morning, Lord, that your spirit would convict us of sin, that your spirit would encourage us in the gospel, that we would be made fully equipped, ready for every good work. God, we ask for your grace this morning as we come come before you and as we come under your word, as we come together as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So these verses give us several quickly narrated scenes describing Moses' return to Egypt. It's kind of funny when you read these verses because they seem a little disjointed. They're rapid fire. They're going very quickly, and they seem disjointed from one another. uh, But when you hold them all together, when you put these verses, these paragraphs together, we see that Moses is returning to Egypt as two things. And so returning to Egypt is really the big idea of this section. This is the transition from the burning bush on the one side to Egypt, Moses arriving in Egypt on the other side. And so it's the in-between that we're looking at this morning. And what we see is that Moses returns to Egypt as two things. And here they are. These are our two points this morning. You can write them down. If you wish, and always encourage the kids to at least write down the the title and the points and, of course, the text, most importantly. Uh, And if you can, just scribble a few things under each of these points and try to understand what's the, how how is all of this fitting together as we go through the sermon today. So, two things. Moses is returning as a prepared Israelite and as a confirmed leader. I think that's what we're meant to get from the text. I think that's Moses' intention as he writes these verses, chapter 4, verses 18 to 31. He comes as a prepared Israelite and as a confirmed leader. So let's look at the first of those. Moses returns as a prepared Israelite. Moses, as we know, is a Hebrew a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. So he is a, he's a son of Israel, a descendant of Israel, Jacob, who became Israel, and therefore he is an Israelite. He is from the tribe of Levi, one of Jacob's 12 sons. So you remember at the end of Genesis, we had Jacob and his 12 sons and the growing family from those 12 sons coming to Egypt. Of course, Joseph is already there, but we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons, and it's through those 12 sons that God builds the nation. He builds the people. Well, Moses is one of those descendants. He descends from the son of Leah named Levi. Even more, Moses is the Israelite whom God has raised up to save all the other Israelites from Egyptian slavery and oppression. But there's a problem. Apart from his very early childhood, Moses has never really known life as an Israelite. Yes, Moses is a Hebrew, biologically, but practically speaking, and in terms of his experience and his biography, Moses has not really lived as one of the Hebrews. He has not known life as an Israelite, apart from however many years it was when he was a very small child, as he was weaned by his biological mother, Jochebed, and then taken by the princess of Egypt. He went directly from the palaces of Egypt to the flocks of Midian. His life so far can be divided basically into two halves. 
40 years in the palaces of Egypt, and then 40 years with the flocks of Midian. Not living as an Israelite in any of that period of time. Yes, Moses is an Israelite by birth. Yes, his earliest childhood years were spent with his Israelite family. Yes, he has been stripped of his Egyptian identity over the last 40 years. And yes, God has made him a sojourning shepherd, much like his ancestors. Yes, 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 all of these things are true. But it is still the case that Moses has never really lived as an Israelite. So here is this man who is to be the Israelite deliverer, and he has never lived as an Israelite apart from his early childhood. And that's where this passage, I think, comes in. Here in this short space of time between the burning bush and Moses' arrival in Egypt, it is as though God is quickly reconstituting Moses as a Hebrew, as one of the sons of Israel. God is preparing Moses. He is reconstituting Moses as an Israelite who will show up as the Israelite deliverer in Egypt. And we see this happening in five ways. This is what we're going to spend a little time looking at. We see God reconstituting Moses as an Israelite in five ways in this passage. And here they are. Moses is removed, reminded, re-identified, re-established, and reunited. And I'll go through each of those again. Removed, reminded, re-identified, re-established, and reunited. So let's take some time in each of those. First, Moses is removed. Very simply, he is removed from Midian. So look at verses 18 to 20. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. So who is Jethro to Moses? Well, this is something to consider. Moses has been under Jethro's roof, so to speak, within his household, however that is construed. He has been under the the banner of his patriarchy in Midian. Jethro is Moses' father-in-law, the father of his wife, Zipporah, and the grandfather of his two sons, Gershom and Eliezer. And also, Jethro has been Moses' employer. Moses has been working for his father-in-law Jethro. We're told that at the beginning of chapter 3. When Moses approaches the burning bush, it says that he is keeping his father-in-law's sheep. He is tending to his father-in-law Jethro's flock. Moses watches over his sheep, works for him, and he is his father-in-law. So, of course, he respectfully returns to him and receives his blessing to go back to his people in Egypt. After all, as Moses says here, they are his brothers. They are his true family. They are his people. And what we find here, much different from Laban, remember Jacob and all of the hardship that 
Jacob had to endure from Laban, his uncle, and his father-in-law back in Genesis. Here we see none of that on the part of Jethro. His response to Moses is entirely positive. God removes all obstacles to Moses leaving. So God removes him. Removes him from Midian without any obstacles in order to relocate him to be with his fellow Israelites. So that's the first thing we see in this preparation of the Israelite Moses is he's simply removed from Midian without obstacles to freely go back to be with his people. Second, Moses is reminded. Look at verse 19. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Now, on one level, God is giving Moses reassurance. He reassures him as he directs him back to Egypt. And he reassures him in this way. He says, those who were trying to kill you, Moses, when you fled, they're not a problem anymore. They're all gone. No worries. You go back, they're not there. No one is going to be seeking your life. And we see that this reassurance had an effect on Moses from the very next verse as he brings his family, his wife and children with him. If Moses had thought that there were still people in Egypt trying to take his life, maybe he would have left his wife and his children there in Midian. But that's not what happens. He takes them with him. He puts them on a donkey and takes them with him back to Egypt. He is reassured. But there's something more that we need to see here that the Lord is doing. By referring to Moses' flight from Egypt 40 years ago, he is reminding him of his former attempt to deliver his fellow Israelites. So think about this for a moment. Uh, How much do we forget in 40 years? I'm not even quite 40 years old, so I can't even answer that question. But for those of you who have been alive longer, you can look back on your life 40 years ago. You forget a lot of things. Now, typically, we don't forget the big things, especially what happened to Moses 40 years before, but those things just recede from our memory. They're not really on the front burner as they once were. For that matter, this can happen in just several years or a decade. It has been 40 years since Moses fled as an Egyptian from Egypt from those who were trying to take his life, specifically the Pharaoh. Remember what happened. Moses had stepped in. There was an Egyptian taskmaster beating, maybe severely, maybe unto the point of death, beating one of his fellow Israelites, one of his fellow Hebrews. Moses steps in and he kills the Egyptian. The next day he goes and he sees these two Hebrews fighting and one Hebrew is in the wrong and he says, break it up, break it up. And he, he rebukes the one who is in the wrong and what happens? He looks at Moses and he says, are you gonna kill me just like you killed the Egyptian? And so at that point Moses realizes that the word is out. The news has gone out that he killed an Egyptian taskmaster. And then we're told that Pharaoh was seeking to take his life. Moses flees for his life. From Egypt, God reminds him of this. And by referring to Moses' flight from Egypt, listen to this, this is important. He is reminding him of his former attempt to deliver his fellow Israelites. He's reminding him, why was it, Moses, that you fled Egypt? 
You fled Egypt and they were seeking your life because you had identified with the Israelites. You had identified with your people. You desired to deliver them. And we know what was in Moses' heart from Acts chapter 7, verse 25. We don't learn this in Exodus, but Stephen under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he is about to be stoned, he says this about Moses. What was in his mind, what was in his heart when he killed that Egyptian. He says this, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. In other words, when Moses stood up against that Egyptian, he had in his mind, God has raised me up to give salvation, to give deliverance to my people. Of course, it didn't go so well at that point. And there's Moses fleeing off to Midian. It's been 40 years. God reminds him of what was in his heart then and says that must be in his heart now. He is an Israelite, identified with his people, and he will be their deliverer. So Moses is reminded, thirdly, Moses is re-identified. Look at verses 21 to 23. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Here, Yahweh gives further instructions and information to Moses. Moses is to make sure that he performs the powerful miracles that God gives him. Moses can't go and do his own thing. Moses doesn't have the right to go with his own message, to go with his own acts. He goes with a very specific calling. And he is to do precisely what the Lord has called him to do. And let me just submit to all of it. That's the case for all of us. Let me just apply this specifically to parenting. God has called us to be the parents of our children. He has sent us to do this in a particular way. I love the way uh, Ted Tripp's book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, And also, Paul David Tripp, his brother's book on parenting, makes this clear. We are ambassadors of God as parents. Listen, parent, you don't have the right to do it your own way. You don't have the right to make it up as you go. If you're a Christian parent, God has told you how to do it. Go forth and conquer. Do it. We recognize that there is much nuance involved as we parent our children and all children are different. But God gives us instruction on how to parent our children. He calls us to do it and he tells us in his word what we are to do. We can't go into that and do it our own way. Make up our own approaches. God's word is sufficient. For our parenting. And God's word is directive for our parenting, just as it was to Moses when he arrived in Egypt. Make sure, Moses, that you perform what I have told you to perform. And then God tells him that he will harden 
or make stubborn Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. Pharaoh's heart will be hardened. Now, this is one of those passages that gets talked about a lot, this whole idea of Pharaoh's hard heart. We read throughout Exodus that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We read in Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And we read simply that Pharaoh's heart was hard. All of those things blended together and kicked off, as it were, by this very first reference where we are told by the Lord that he will be the one to harden or make stubborn Pharaoh's heart. And that just reminds us, as we constantly need to be reminded of, God is sovereign over hearts. Pray for those who are unbelievers. Pray for other people who are offending you, who are, who are striking out against you. Pray for anyone and everyone knowing that God has the power to change their hearts. God holds the hearts of men in his hands. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. He has the power to do that. Why? Why did, this is often a question for people. Well, I mean, what, what, God hardening Pharaoh's heart, I mean, how, so, that, so that Pharaoh would not let the people go. So that he will not let them go. For the purpose, God hardening Pharaoh's heart for the purpose that he be obstinate against letting the people go. Let me say it this way. God making Pharaoh's heart unwilling to let the people go. Why would God do that? The answer is simple. For his own glory. That's exactly what we read in Exodus 14.4. Listen to what it says. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them. He'll pursue them because his heart's hardened. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Why did God make Pharaoh's heart hard and obstinate and stubborn? So that he would be glorified as the God over Egypt, as the God over Pharaoh, as the God over all. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. So that's what the Lord tells Moses that he is, that he will do. And Moses is to deliver this message from Yahweh. This is the message. Israel is mine, says Yahweh. My firstborn son, let him go to serve me or I will kill your firstborn son. This is the message that Moses is to bring to the Pharaoh. God warned him what was going to happen. We're going to see the outworking of this in later chapters, but for now, I want you to notice what this message does for Moses. It defines Israel in relation to God in the most intimate way. This is the first time that God is referred to as a father to his people. And it defines specifically Israel in relation to God as his firstborn son, collectively as a people. And therefore, it re-identifies Moses as one of those who belong to this firstborn son of God. This member of the firstborn son of God, this re-identified member of the firstborn son of God is to go to them, the others, and bring them out of 
slavery. Firstborn with all the rights and privileges that that entails. This is who Moses is. And we know that this, this reference to Israel as the firstborn son, it anticipates Christ who is the true Israel. He is the only begotten of the Father. He's called throughout the New Testament the firstborn. But what I want you to see here is that Moses is re-identified in relation to God as one of the members of the Son of God, the firstborn, Israel. Fourth, Moses is reestablished. Look at this strange passage, verses 24 to 26. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he led him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now this story would just, just seems to parachute in out of nowhere has generated much debate among commentators. And there's all sorts of discussion. In fact, uh, there was one commentary that I was reading on this question. And uh, on the page of commentary, there was at the top about three lines. And, and you know, larger font. And the whole rest of the page was a footnote uh, describing all the different articles and works that have been written on these, these three verses. So I'm not going to give you all of that. I'm not going to, to go through all of that. Uh, we're not going to have a 10-part a, a series on uh, this incident. But I do want you to see that the basic issue is clear. Regardless of all of uh, the issues that are debated, you know, was it... Uh, uh, did, did Zipporah, what she said at the end, did it express anger and revulsion or was it some sort of idiom for circumcision? Uh, was Moses the one who was being attacked to be killed or was it his son? Moses' name's not mentioned here. It's assumed from the context. These are just some of the questions. I go on, but I won't do that. What I want you to see is that the basic issue is that Moses has failed to circumcise his son. That's the basic issue. Regardless of what you make of all of those other points, Moses has failed to circumcise his son. Is it Gershom or Eliezer? Well, we don't know. The reference to firstborn in the previous verses suggests that Gershom might be in view. But the fact that Gershom is probably 40 years old at this point suggests that it might be referring to a recently born Eliezer. We don't know. One way or another, one of these sons has not been circumcised. There's a problem. Moses has failed to carry out his covenant obligation from Genesis 17, verses 11 to 12. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, as Mark read earlier, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. So Moses has failed as an Israelite. Remember, God is preparing him as an Israelite. He is to arrive in, Mo he is to arrive in Egypt as a prepared Israelite. And here is Moses who has failed as a descendant of Abraham, as a, a covenanted Israelite, he has failed to carry out the sign of the covenant with his child. So what does God do? Well, God shows up to kill him. That's what God does. 
He comes to punish Moses for this oversight. The seriousness of sin, the seriousness of disobedience is in view. You might be thinking, whoa, if God kills Moses, that God's plan, God's plan is not dependent on Moses. If God would have had to kill Moses for his disobedience and his rebellion and his sin in that moment, God would have raised up another deliverer. This is another thing we need to remember is God doesn't need us. He is the glorious sovereign God who will carry out his purposes. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. We serve at his pleasure. We serve for his glory. And we serve only by his grace. Otherwise, we would have no role in his kingdom work. But I want you to see the seriousness of this sin, the seriousness of this oversight, of this disobedience. Moses has failed to walk worthy of the calling. Moses has failed to function as a covenant member. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 tells us, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's who we are as new covenant people. We are in the new covenant in Christ's blood and we are told, as Abraham's descendants were told, to walk worthy of the calling, of the covenant to which we belong. Now it's interesting in Ephesians, the first three chapters, a Paul lays out this covenant, what it is that God has done for us in Christ. In some of the most glowing language of Ephesians 1 to 3, we get this wonderful description of what God has done for us in Christ. And after all of that theology, running up to the end of chapter 3, we get that break, that very clear break in chapter 4, verse 1. And what is the call? What is it that Paul calls Christians to do, that the Holy Spirit through Paul calls us to do? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. The seriousness of sin is written all over the Bible. The human condition is such that even as those who are believers carrying around our mortal bodies, our go-to is to justify sin. It is to make peace with sin. It is to cling to sin and keep sin in our pocket. And pull it out, ask for forgiveness, and then pull it out again. That's our tendency. That's our proclivity. So see, people of God, read verses like this and recognize the need to repent of sin this day. Repent of wickedness, of godlessness. Repent of repeated struggles, so-called. Turn from sin. And turn to God. Walk worthy of the calling. But God's intentions we need to see here are not to kill Moses. But to reconstitute him as a legitimate Israelite with circumcised sons. That's the main idea I want you to see. God did not show up to kill Moses Knowing that he would kill Moses, he showed up in that way. Knowing he was going to deliver Moses from this. By having his son circumcised. He uses Zipporah. Moses may be sick to the point of dying. We don't know what it means that God showed up to kill him. Most say that he's probably under some kind of really dire sickness. But Zipporah reluctantly carries out this act. She does what Moses apparently could not do. And what he had not done in circumcising her son. The point 
Moses is now ready to go to Egypt as an Israelite, as a covenant member of Israel. Finally, fifthly, Moses is reunited. He is reunited with his Hebrew brother, with his Hebrew family. We read that in verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Now we read over this very quickly, but you can imagine the emotion involved in this reunion. Here is Moses who hasn't been with his family, his Hebrew family, since he was a little boy. Maybe very small, perhaps an infant, but maybe a toddler, maybe even a little bit older, but it's been so long, at least 40 years, since he has seen his people, much less his own family. And here his brother, his Hebrew brother, his Israelite brother, comes out to meet him and embraces him as his brother. So let me sum it up at this point. Here's what we see. When Moses finally arrives in Egypt, he will arrive as one who is thoroughly Hebrew. That's the big thing that we need to see. An Israelite prepared and reconstituted by Yahweh himself, a Hebrew deliverer of the Hebrew people. And let me just make one quick implication for us as we think about this. God prepares his people for their vocation. God does that. He doesn't just call us out to something and give us no preparation. He doesn't just call us out to something and leave us on our own and, and just tell us to fend for ourselves. God prepares his people for what he has called them to do. Moses will arrive in Egypt as a bona fide Israelite. Secondly, as a confirmed leader. Moses will return to Egypt as a confirmed leader as we close up this morning It has been a long time since Moses led anything in his life except sheep. Josephus, a Jewish historian living after the time of Christ in the first century, Josephus reported that Moses had been in charge of an army against the Ethiopians when he was an Egyptian prince. Now, this is not something we learn from the Bible, but it does cause you to wonder. Moses, for 40 years, is an Egyptian prince. What is he doing? Is he just lounging around the palace all day, eating fruit, going out, just sort of taking in the the scenery? No, he has jobs to do. And Josephus tells us that according to tradition, Moses had actually been a, a commander, some sort of military leader, and he had led an expedition against the Ethiopians. So perhaps that is true. But those days are long gone. When God comes to Moses in the burning bush, we see an insecure man. One very different from the daring Egyptian prince of 40 years before. But that is exactly where the Lord wants Moses. Not relying on himself. Humble and dependent. Leaning entirely on Yahweh's word, power, and presence. So in addition to reconstituting Moses as an Israelite, Yahweh also wants to confirm him as a leader. When Moses shows up in Egypt, he needs to be a legitimate Israelite. And he needs to be a confirmed leader. When Moses stands before Pharaoh... He must be both of these things. And that's what we see in these final verses of chapter 4. God confirms Moses' leadership by fulfilling his word to him. And this shows up here in three ways. So let me give these to you and we'll go through them quickly. The brother, 
the signs, and the elders. So first, we see confirmation through the brother. Moses' brother, Aaron. Look at verses 27 to 30. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke with all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. Just as God said, Moses goes out to meet Aaron. Aaron comes to Moses. They meet one another at the mountain of God. When Moses shares what God has revealed to him, Aaron doesn't reject his message. Now keep in mind, Aaron is his older brother. He's three years older than Moses. He doesn't reject it. He accepts it. And then we see Aaron participating in the work and following Moses by functioning as his mouthpiece. All of this to confirm God's call and Moses' leadership through his brother. Second, we see confirmation through the signs. Look at verse 30. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. Last week we read about the three signs that God gave Moses to perform before the elders so that they would accept his message. Moses says to God, they won't listen to me, they won't believe me, they won't believe that you sent me. God says, let me give you some miracles, let me give you some signs to validate the fact that you have been with me and that I have sent you, to validate your message. And so here we see these signs being referred to. Earlier on, they're, they're the stick to a snake. God turned a, the staff into a snake and then back again. God turned Moses' healthy hand into a diseased hand and then back again. And then the Nile water would be turned to blood, God told him. Here in just a few words, we are told that Aaron did the signs in the sight of the people. So what's the point? God confirms his word to Moses. And he confirms Moses' leadership to the people by showing up. He shows up and does the signs that he told Moses he was going to do. God has kept his word. And he will continue to keep his word. Let's think about this for a moment with God's faithfulness. Here, God demonstrates his faithfulness to Moses. And it's meant to give Moses the encouragement that God will continue to be faithful. And let me just say that to us this morning. The God who has been faithful to you already. And if you just think about any area of your life, I guarantee you any area of your life that you would want to complain about. Take a drive. Take a walk. Take five, ten minutes and start to think in that specific area that you would complain about. All the ways that God has been good and faithful and gracious and kind to you. That past faithfulness is meant to push us forward. This demonstration of God's signs, this confirmation of Moses' leadership is meant to drive him forward into the tumultuous waters of standing before the most powerful man in the world who will say to him, Who is your God? And who will reject his word time and time and time again. 
Moses needs this confirmation in in order to be encouraged in his future work. And then finally, thirdly, we see confirmation through the elders. Look at verse 31, the last verse. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. This is the exact opposite response of what Moses anticipated. Moses thinks he's going to get there and he's going to speak to the elders and they're going to speak to him just like that Hebrew slave all those years ago who looked at him probably snarling with anger and said, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian Moses? That's not what he finds at all. They receive him. They believe his word And they prostrate themselves before the God who had revealed himself to Moses. They trust in Moses' words that God had visited them by visiting him. What do they mean when they say, God has visited us? Well, he has visited them in the person of Moses. So in these verses this morning, we see this great truth. God doesn't call us. And then leave us. Just in this little chunk of verses between the burning bush and Moses in Egypt coming to Pharaoh. This little chunk of verses tells us that God does not call us to something and then leave us. Whatever that calling might be. Whatever that vocation. Whatever that work. That responsibility that we have to do. He doesn't call us and leave us. He is preparing And confirming he is with us in our calling as Christians. This calling to which we've been called. And in any work that he may call us to in this life. He is the God who never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He prepares us. He affirms us. He encourages us. And he does all of this by means of his fulfilled word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us once again this morning through Scripture. We thank you for showing us your kindness and love as we see it demonstrated in the life of Moses, even as you are angry with him at his third objection, and even as you show up to put him to death for his defiance of the covenant, as you said you would do. Lord, we see your grace. We see your sovereign goodness that you show up in order that you might legitimize Moses as an Israelite. Lord, we see your faithfulness and your grace written all over the fabric of our lives. We praise you for that, God, and we ask that you would help us to turn from sin, to walk worthy of the calling to which you have called us, to trust in your faithfulness, to live out our vocations knowing that you're with us, and that you will provide all that we need, that we are to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, and all the things that we could possibly need will be added unto us. Lord, we thank you for these promises, these very great and precious promises from your word. We thank you for our Lord Jesus, who died that we might be free from sin, that we might have the Spirit and live with you forever. We praise you through him, 
in his name. And we now celebrate the Lord's Supper, Lord. We pray that you would guide us through it, that our hearts would be pure before you, that we would confess our sins, turn from sin, and that our hearts would be filled with love for you and love for one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.